May the words in my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. You guys come on and sit down here, Karen. We have, by the way, we have just witnessed a Christmas miracle. A Christmas miracle. Karen read that gospel and her mic did not cut out one time. So I was, Kathy and I came at the 5.30 service last Sunday, and Karen's mic was, she preached, and her mic cut out like 50% of the time. So I told Matthew this week, I said, we have to get Karen a new mic. He said, it's not the mic. I've tried her with yours. I've tried her with Father Tom's and hers. It's her. There's some electrical component going on in her body that cuts it out, and I don't understand it, but it's not the mic. So somehow today, God is restored. This was a good thing. See, Christmas miracles still happen. It's amazing. Well, I want to talk to you today about, the, about Christmas. And uh, the big idea today is that at Christmas, God became a man in order to save us from our sins. And sometimes I think we get caught up in other things. Take the year 1809, for example. The international scene was tumultuous. Napoleon was sweeping through Austria. Blood was flowing freely. Nobody then cared about babies, but the world was overlooking some terribly significant births. For example, William Gladstone was born that year. He was destined to become one of England's finest statesmen. That same year, Alfred Tennyson was born to an obscure minister and his wife. The child would one day greatly affect the literary world in a marked manner. On the American continent, Oliver Wendell Holmes was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And not far away in Boston, Edgar Allan Poe began his eventful, albeit tragic, life. It was also that same year that a physician named Darwin and his wife named their child Charles Robert. And that same year produced the cries of a newborn infant in a rugged log cabin in Hardin County, Kentucky, the baby's name Abraham Lincoln. If there had been news broadcast at that time, I'm certain these words would have been heard. The destiny of the world is being shaped on an Austrian battlefield today. Or was it? Funny, only a handful of history buffs today could name even two or three of the Austrian campaigns. Looking back, you realize that history was actually being shaped in the cradles of England and America as young mothers held in their arms the shakers and the movers of the future. No one could deny that 1809 was in fact the genesis of an era. The same could be said of the time when Jesus of Nazareth was born. No one in the entire Roman Empire could have cared about the birth of that Jewish infant in Bethlehem. Rome ruled the world. That's where history was being made. Maybe like this. In December 1903, after many attempts, the Wright brothers were successful in getting their flying machine off the ground. Thrilled, they telegraphed this message to their sister Catherine. We have actually flown 120 feet. We'll be home for Christmas. Catherine hurried to the editor of the local newspaper and showed him the message. He glanced at it and said, how nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. 
he totally missed the big news, man and flock. And sometimes we totally miss the big news, Christ is born. And I get it, Santa, I mean, I got my Jingle Bell socks on here today, I, my Christmas attire, Santa and trees and presents and families and all the rest of it that goes with it, but we can't miss the reason for the season is Jesus Christ. Very humble birth. Not what you would expect for the birth of a king. He was born not in a hospital room or even a room. He was born in a manger, a stable, among not among the wealthy or the elites, but among animals. Very unexpected. The reason they had gone to Bethlehem was because Rome had dictated, Caesar had dictated a, a census for the purpose of taxation and military service. The Jews were not... Um, open to military service, or it was simply for taxation. He goes back to the city of David, which is the city of his family's uh, birth and ancestry. And that was where the Messiah was prophesied to be born. It's interesting. In his book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner applies the modern science of probability to just eight prophecies regarding, regarding Christ. He says... The chance that any man might have fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th. That would be one in 100 quadrillion, 17 zeros. Stoner suggests that we take 10 to the 17th silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. It will cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of the silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly blindfold a man somewhere in Texas and tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up that one marked silver dollar. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Stoner concludes, just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing those eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man. And they all came true in one man, Jesus of Nazareth. This announcement is made to the shepherds, not made to the elites, not made to the upper class, not made to the leaders, the royalty, made to shepherds. You wonder why. Shepherds were actually outcasts. The shepherds that we're talking about were near uh, this area. Bethlehem was right near Jerusalem, and this is where they would raise lambs for, for the uh, sacrifices in the temple. Shepherds were perpetually unclean. They were not allowed in the temple. They were outcasts in that sense. Shepherds are also not easily fooled. They're very practical. Don't deal in fantasy. You probably wouldn't find too many snowflakes among them. You probably wouldn't know what a microaggression was that hit them over the head. Very practical to be the first to know about Jesus. This is, they were part of something that is, that is known now as the muscular class. Okay? Construction workers, electricians, truck drivers, farmers. We had a leak here not too long ago, and we had a couple of guys in the kitchen working hard to fix it. And I walked into the kitchen, and I said to them, 
very thankful that they were there. I said, you know, I've never needed a celebrity, but I have needed a plumber. Thank you for being here. And they fixed it. They fixed it. I doubt whether any of them had a Ph.D., but they knew what they were doing. This is the group that God chose to reveal Jesus to in the beginning. The truth of Christmas is that God of the universe became a man to reconcile us to himself. So let's suppose that I owned an ant farm. And for reasons known only to myself, I love those ants more than anything in the world. How could I communicate my love to them? I could shout, I love you, but because I speak English and they speak ant, they wouldn't understand. I could write them a letter, but they couldn't read it. I could shrink down to <coughs> ant size, but they wouldn't recognize me. But if I had supernatural powers, there was one thing I could do. I could take on the form of an ant, be born as an ant, live as an ant, and communicate as they do. Then I could find a way to say, I love you. And that's exactly what God did when he brought Jesus Christ to this earth on this day. The name Jesus means God saves. And you say, well, save me from what? And the answer is save me from punishment for my sins. It's personal, you and me. We are sinful people, and Jesus is the one to save us. Not Buddha, not Krishna, not Muhammad, Jesus. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Really, that's why, we're the, that's why we left the Episcopal Church. They denied the uniqueness of Christ, and they denied the authority of Scripture. So we said bye-bye. So the question is, how will he save us? The problem is we don't even need, we need, think we need saving. We think we're just fine. The problem is we're not okay. We do a comparison game. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can always find somebody worse than me. At least I'm not Guy Baker. <sighs> or Floor. At least I'm not you. Because we know all about you guys. You may be down here, but at least I'm up here. So I can always find somebody that I can say to myself, at least I'm not like that. I'm better than that. But the problem with that, it doesn't work. This idea of comparison doesn't work. We need help. We need help not to give in to greed or lust or unforgiveness or anger or bitterness or resentment or self-centeredness. I could go on. I'm not okay, and I need supernatural intervention. The good news is that God is not trapped in heaven. He came down among us. But this was a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. It was a stumbling block to the Jews because the Jews knew that the, the word of God said, if you're hung on a tree, you're cursed. Jesus was crucified, hung on a tree, so how could he be the Messiah? And it was folly to the Greeks because the Greeks had an idea and an understanding of the gods that they were completely indifferent to the creation and the people who lived here, us. Why would they sacrifice anything for us? It just made absolutely no sense. But he did come. It's called the great condescension or the great stoop. Incarnation means the enfleshment of God. 
John 3, 16, God so loved, for God so loved the world, world cosmos, those who do not know or love God. That's when John uses the word world, it's cosmos, and it means the people who don't care about him. For God so loved the people that don't even care about him that he sent his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. When we say the creed, this is what we say about Jesus. We talk about God the Father, we talk about God the Son, we talk about God the Holy Spirit, and we talk about the church. The one that gets the most ink is Jesus. Here's what we believe. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. In accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. If you come to 1015 or a right to service at this church, you will see the opening paragraph that I will read shortly of the Eucharistic service. Here's the opening paragraph that people hear it, but it just kind of goes over their head. Here's what it says. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you and your mercy sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal Son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself in obedience to your will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. That is the essence of the gospel. This is what God did for us because we could not do it for ourselves. People respond to Jesus differently. Some are amazed. Wow, I didn't know that. Some are curious. Oh, tell me more. I always think at the funeral, there are three people, three kinds of people at funerals. My amen corner, who are nodding and agreeing with me when I'm talking, and I, I kind of feed off that. Then there's a second group that are kind of, oh, gee, well, that's interesting. Oh, good, good. I hadn't heard that before. And then there's the third type. When's the reception? How long is this guy going to talk? You know? And it's that group that I'm really going for, you know. Some are indifferent, some are embracing, but his story continues and it doesn't end. You know, when I do funerals, I do a demonstration of the gospel. Some of you have seen that numerous times. So I'm going to use Mike Broadbent. Yeah, you. Uh... Uh, Ed, come on up. Mm -hmm. uh, Bernardo, the old faithful. All right, Ed, you stand here like this and face this way. Mike, come on up here. Bernardo, you're in the middle. There you go. So this is this is this is the gospel. Here we have the miserable sinner, okay? 
could be me, could be you, could be any, any of us, miserable sinner. Here we have God the Father. So when God the Father looks at Ed, just like this, he sees him as unholy, unacceptable, and unrighteous. The reason is because Ed is unholy and unrighteous and unacceptable on his own to God. And then maybe at some point Ed thinks, you know, I've got to do something to make God like me. Maybe I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to say my prayers. I'm going to give money. Oh, God is going to be so happy with me. The problem is that when we do things like that in order to reconcile ourselves with God and make him like us and accept us, the Bible says all those good works that I just mentioned fall at the feet of God like filthy rags, filthy rags, menstrual cloths is actually what they are in the Bible. It gives you an idea of how wonderful those things are in the sight of a holy and righteous God. But we have Christmas. And what we could not do for ourselves, God has done for us. And when I was 33 years old, I woke up and said, I'm helpless. I cannot do this. But thank you, God, for sending your son, Jesus. And I asked Christ to step between the Father and me. And now, when the Father looks at the sinner through his son, he sees him as righteous and holy and acceptable, not because of what he's done, because of what Jesus did for him. And now, they're brothers. That's really the gospel. That's it. It's not any more complicated than that. And I'm praying and I'm hoping that everybody here understands that and has done this and recognized your need for Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Amen? All right. Thank you, boys. Very good. Let me leave you with this prayer. Lord Jesus, for too long I've kept you out of my life. No longer will I close the door when I hear you knocking. Here and now I open the door and invite you to come into my heart. I gratefully receive your gifts of salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth. With all my heart, I believe you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead on the third day. Thank you for giving me the gift of eternal life. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. There is room in my heart for you. Amen.